0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 30 of the Wake Up Podcast. On this one, I have a um, a very special guest. All, all guests are special, but this one is from a fine English gentleman called Godfrey Bloom. So many of you will know him. The first time I came across his work was uh, listening to Stefan Levera's podcast. And then I saw a couple of his YouTube clips where... He's famously known for "We need to hang the bastards" when he's talking about central bankers, which is, um, which is something I 100 percent fundamentally agree with in this podcast. we talk about how you know the modern state emerged um, and how you know what so-called modernity today looks almost like you know the, the medieval suppression of the people. Um, you know we talk about how ridiculous the you know these whether it's mask mandates whether it's lockdowns and you know how Godfrey rightfully puts it um, you know what these these new laws that are effectively we've been living under martial law for the last twelve months uh, at no fault of our own you know and he makes a brilliant uh, counter example of you know what people behaved like during the war let alone how we're behaving today with some virus with a ninety nine percent uh, survival rate. So, anyway, we discussed that, and then what we did towards the end was uh, we we tried to create a, we tried to have a discussion about the the opposing viewpoints. Well, one might not see them as opposing, but at least we try to take a different stance on you know Bitcoin versus gold. Um, now, by and large, we agree on the raison d'etre for both. Uh, But I tried to put forward the argument that Bitcoin will make gold obsolete, so despite gold having had maintained its purchasing power for thousands of years now, we will arguably not see that over the long term as Bitcoin begins to erode gold's monetary premium because the desire or the need or the requirement for gold begins to evaporate as Bitcoin matures and monetizes itself. So anyway, th- this is a great discussion. Um, this this one I think is fantastic for anyone who's got, who knows someone. You know, and I say this in the nicest, most polite way, but you know, someone who's older or you know more mature or whatever. You know, that th- that kind of rapport they will get from Godfrey because. Uh, you know, Godfrey is from a generation older than mine, and you know we we seem to have come to consensus on not only the madness of the world but the fact that we need to do something to, I guess, not only, uh, you know, dissolve the power of the state, but ideally remove the state altogether. So this is a great podcast. I think everyone's going to learn a lot. As usual, subscribe, share this around, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Wake Up Podcast.
1: And we are live with episode 30 the wake up podcast and on this episode i have someone uh special and actually very impromptu in the way we set this up uh godfrey bloom who is a austrian school of economics economist uh former fund manager i don't don't believe you're managing any funds anymore um and he spent i think i've got this right five years with the european parliamentary committee on economics or something which must have been the most painful five years of his life so (laughs) i will
0: I'll let Godfrey tell us
1: a little bit about that journey of his, uh, how and why Austrian economics, a little bit about the fund and maybe maybe a little insight into the um, Parliamentary of, uh, Committee of Economics and what that might've been like. Sure, well, uh, I went into the city uh, in
2: 1967 and to the city of London uh, as a very young guy and a very new guy, uh, in the investment world. Uh, and I sort of started pretty much close to the bottom. In those days you could. You didn't shoot in with the university degree mid, midway up the ranking structure. You worked all your way up, right through the top. And I worked myself to be the CEO of a life insurance company, which was broadly based of course, uh, on investment and mortality statistics. And so all very boring. I managed um, fixed interest, uh, which meant yep. I was on the second floor Uh, um, sneered at by the equity managers um, who are all the sort of the glamour boys of the city. Uh, But I was there in the city for nearly 40 years uh, and I did win a few prizes for managing fixed interest funds, which is about Mm -hmm. currency, of course, uh, and about international uh, balancing of portfolios, so on and so forth. So I'm quite experienced as far as that is concerned. Uh, So I've seen... I've seen the whole gamut come through.
1: What era was this? Was this sort of uh, 80s, 90s? Which um, which period is this? <laughs> no, uh, this was the late 1960s. Uh, oh, well,
2: okay. <laughs> okay, and we had to wear... Uh, this is going to make you laugh, especially as an Aussie. I had to wear a bowler hat in those days as well. We all had bowler hats. And the Stock Exchange had top hats. They had to have top Fantastic. hats. And I went from there until I left the city of London formally in 2004, uh, where they'd introduced things like computers and stuff, none of which, of course, I understand. Uh, So I saw it. That's the sort of the the range uh, that I had. uh, So lots of experience. And then um, it was about Brexit. I went into politics very late in life uh, because I wanted to leave the European Union. Uh, I wanted a return for United Kingdom back to self-government. I didn't want to be a province of the European Union, uh, which is a a highly centralized state bureaucracy and nothing to do with free trade at all. uh, And it's about Mm -hmm. protection. All the things I hated as an economist and indeed a free-born Englishman. So I went into politics. I was elected for Yorkshire for 10 years, although five of those years were spent on the economic and monetary affairs committee. Um, And these are the people for uh, ratifying regulation in then, until quite recently, of the City of London. This is an extraordinary thing. The committee of 40 people consisted of uh, socialists, trade unionists, uh, elderly Danish housewives, grandmas from France, who most of the time I had to explain what an investment trust was or what a hedge fund was. Or what goes? So they didn't even understand it. But they are the people who are regulating. But of course, the strings are pulled by the Commission. Uh, the Parliament is is simply um, a veneer of respectability. It's an amending chamber. But the really bad mm-hmm. guys are behind the scenes, working for the ECB, as all central bankers are. It's an international criminal conspiracy. Uh, and the ECB, the Fed, the Bank of England, the Bank—they're all—they're all the same. They're all criminals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got some popularity in my speeches. I got over 50 million views of my parliamentary speeches in total. 50 million. Uh, um, trying to persuade uh, the European population to take out and hang their bankers. Uh, still, sadly, not a single banker has been hanged. But I'm working on it.
1: Uh, mate, I... Um, if... <laughs> Until... Until we remove their ability to fund their way out of hanging, unfortunately, uh, try as we may, uh, no one's getting hanged on that side of the fence. Um, Wow. So, okay, so five years there. So so when did you when did you wrap up with that committee? When did you sort of say enough was enough?
2: Uh, I finished when we won the well, basically, when we won the referendum to leave the European Union, my job was done. Uh, I've, okay. I'm not interested in politic party politics because they're all crooks mm-hmm. as well. Uh, so yep. I didn't really want any of that. It was one thing I wanted and that was Brexit. We've got Brexit of a sort of a sort. It's not perfect. yeah we've got that. And then it was time for me to go back to my little small holding in, in Yorkshire with a few uh, a few sheep and a few chickens and a few horses and a few dogs. Uh, and I was hoping to drink the rest of my life away at a British pub, but they've closed all our pubs.
1: So now, yeah, so now you have stuck in a, in a red room drinking by yourself. So, so that, that, I think, leads us nicely into, I guess, that what we wanted to discuss here is the, the modern state and how I, I, I did a tweet a little while ago. And, and what I said was. You know, people keep talking about this as, oh, you know, we just have to get through this, and at some point it's going to get better, with this sort of blind hope that the bureaucrats who caused the mess are somehow going to be the bureaucrats who fix the mess. You know, this is a, you know, I always say that these clowns couldn't find, and I apologise for the profanity here, but you know, an Australian colloquialism is they couldn't find a root in a brothel. So I don't think these guys could find a solution if it slapped them in the face, because they 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 seem to incessantly feel the need to stick their fingers uh, where they don't belong because they need to somehow validate their existence. Uh, when in reality, the solution is to get the hell out of the way and allow people to make decisions for themselves. So unfortunately, we're living in some sort of uh, Huxleyan, and Orwellian utopian slash dystopian uh, version of the future, which is kind of uh, almost a blend of, I call it brave new 1984. It's like a blend of both where you know we're we're basically at home. Uh, you know, told that the world is dangerous and that we shouldn't go out unless we now wear. I think it's six masks at the moment. Um, and you know, I mean, each mask apparently uh, will help until you suffocate yourself completely, um, and then you'll be safe. So so tell me tell me your thoughts on how you know how, how did we get here? Why is it that these bureaucrats are so adept at making things worse than what they can be uh, should we allow human beings to just make decisions for themselves?
2: Well, of course, uh, if you go back to Lord Salisbury, the conservative administration of the late 1890s, his mantra, if you will, was the role of government is simply the role of parliamentarians to facilitate the entrepreneurial spirit of the British people. That was his view. And that's pretty well when we had the fastest growth, the industrial revolution, uh, and for better or worse, in my view, of course, better, I would say that, wouldn't I? We had the biggest empire that the world's ever seen. And Mm -hmm. in in my view, that was no bad thing, but it it was largely because people were left to get on with it, get on with their personal lives. There was no question of interfering in people's personal lives. So we've gone from that conservative administration to now to the United Kingdom, where I'm speaking to you under martial law. I can't leave Mm -hmm. my house. If there's a policeman, I have to explain where I'm going uh, and what I'm doing. So we've gone from there. And people, as you rightly say, they have to wear these muzzles, which of course the World Health Organization, everybody knows, every doctor knows, every surgeon knows, are no good at all for keeping out a virus. You might as well put chicken wire over your face to keep yourself getting bitten by mosquitoes. Everybody knows it's ridiculous. It's got nothing whatsoever to do with preserving public health. It's to let the government know that you are subservient. Now, of course, the problem that we have is most of the electorate are gullible. They're stupid and they're gullible. So in the land of the blind, these bureaucrats and politicians uh, manipulate them terribly simply. We didn't even have this, they've closed all the pubs, they've closed the shops. We didn't even have this in the war. And when we had bombs Mm. dropping and V2s and uh, V1s and V2s, my father was a fighter pilot uh, in the war. If he was on leave having a drink with my pint with my father, my grandfather, they would go into a pub uh, and try and avoid pubs with too much glass partitions for the blast and stuff like that. But that decision they made and if there was an air raid siren in a theater and people win the theater or a uh, or cinema, somebody would come and say, there's an air raid warning. The show will go on. You can leave if you want to or stay if you want to. And people made their own risk assessment. Now, what yes. you're not allowed to do now is to make a risk assessment for yourself. Now, we both know, and I suspect everybody watching this clip because they're the sort of people you will have free thinking people watching your your show. That's Mm -hmm. why they're watching the show. We all know that if you're fit and healthy and under 70, your survival rate from Corona uh, virus is 99%. So what else do we know? We know there's no danger. We know there's no serious danger. Uh, We also know that in the flu epidemic, and I can only speak for British figures, in 1957, 1958, 1968, and 2010, the figures were either worse or the same as they are today in mortality statistics. And as an ex-CEO of a life insurance company, I know something about mortality statistics. So what else do we know? Well, we know, therefore, is bollocks. We we, we mm-hmm. know that this is a scam. So mm-hmm. what we have to do is then work out why is there a scam? What's the point in the scam? Why is this being uh, throughout the Western world? Why are they all saying the same thing? The phrase is build back better, reset mm. the new normal. They're all singing off the same hymn sheet and they're all burying the freedom of the individual, which, of course, we thought in England and Australia and the Anglosphere, for want of a better expression, we thought we'd won that freedom years ago. We thought that fight was over. And of course, uh, I think it might have been Reagan who said, you can't just win freedom and hope it's going to stay there for years and years and years. You have to continue fighting for freedom. Uh, And... That's what we have to do, and that's what we're not doing. A little bit in Eastern Europe now, where they've been relatively recently historically out of the Soviet Union. They know and recognise totalitarianism, the lack of freedom when they see it. The Brits don't understand it, and Aussies don't understand it, because we haven't been invaded since 1066. So we're all asleep. We're fast asleep. Mm -hmm. We don't know what's happening. Uh, And, of course, it's... Uh, it's going on forever. It was going to be for a month. It was going to be for two weeks. Then it's a month. We're now a year into martial law. The MSM has been bought. Mainstream media has been bought off. Social media is now being censored. So people aren't getting the truth. All they're doing is believing what they read, what they see on the BBC. Um, Until we can get information to people, until we can get information to people to make their own risk assessments and understand what's going on, it's very difficult to see how we get out of this trap. And of course, the people, Bitcoiners and gold bugs, Okay, you know, I think we're flip side of the same coin, to be honest. Um, uh, I don't see there's any dichotomy here. We already know this. That's why we're in Bitcoin or gold. We're already there. But we are a tiny percentage of the population who still have not yet woken up. And And I think... That's our danger.
1: So a million threads there that I want to pull on, but one in, one in particular was I was on a podcast with some people, I think it was a couple of weeks ago and, and, and we discussed you know what, what was the root cause of like how we went wrong and I think you, you touched on a few things there is you know one element of it is you know countries that were traditionally I mean Australia has been called the lucky country from the beginning and I think it, you know it was Australia in particular, Um, you know, has some, you know, interesting advantages. One, being an island out in the middle of nowhere, which is far away from everything. Number two, being originally, um, you know, colonized with the values of, you know, the United Kingdom in its heyday um, and sort of being built up from there. Number three, being um, extremely resource rich. So it actually had capital to turn into further capital. So so, Australia has been very, very, very lucky. And 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 it's really interesting because I was talking to someone, I think it was a couple of years ago actually, where I said, Australia is probably one of the most prone countries to fall down or, you know, fall down the rabbit hole of draconianism because they haven't felt the, uh, the, you know, the, the terror call it or the, you know, the, the oppression that comes from programs that are collectivist in nature. Because, you know, when all of a sudden, uh, number one, your personal agency and personal responsibility is removed, uh, and, it, and it sort of gets, you know, pushed onto some faceless, nameless, disembodied organization called the government. But at the same time, you're told that we're all in this together and that someone else's safety and, you know, livelihood is your responsibility. It's sort of, you know, we, we, we do away with private property under this guise of, uh, it's it's kind of like you said this build back better we're all in this together new normal and it's kind of we we remove any autonomy and individual decision making and most importantly I think the point that I wanted to make initially is we actually erode responsibility and I think and this was sort of the conclusion when we came to on that other podcast is that the problems we're seeing today are a result of the continual erosion or the continual renunciation of individual responsibility as we do that as we remove responsibility as we remove the individual from the locus of responsibility and place it onto some nameless faceless state or someone else we start to become dependent and dependency implies that you are in some form of prison effectively you know you, you are not free like you've got freedom on one side you've got dependency on the other and that's where under the guise of safety under the guise of you know, we'll do it for you. Um, we've slowly, by slowly, slipped into a world that is completely one of dependence, as opposed to personal responsibility, which is the basis, I believe, of freedom. And, and that, for me, is extremely dangerous because it's such a it's such a nice sounding thing. Oh, we're all in this together. Oh, you know, let's let's be equal. Let's be nice to each other. But in reality we actually erode the very uh i guess the the very substance or the very foundation upon which a free society can be built so i I don't know if you if you agree with that the the notion of responsibility being at the locus of it and if you've got any thoughts on that
2: yes well of course you're completely right uh in 1945 uh, in great britain we returned a socialist government And believe me, it wasn't New Labour, it wasn't Blairite, it was rabid socialist. You know, we had tax Mm. rates of 95p in the pound. Uh, We had uh, Mm. estate duties uh, where all our big country houses were torn down. This was socialism, real hardcore socialism. Uh, And that was the birth of things like the national health system, which, of course, in the United Kingdom is holy. If you think the cow is sacred in India, you want to talk about the NHS in Britain, uh, it is you simply cannot criticise it. it. You you just can't. You'll you know you'll be you'll be murdered. So we had this problem in 1945, and there was this pact with the state, which was maybe just a bit going that way anyway. You might argue it started in 1911 with Lloyd George and his acceptance of the Prussian way. Take away people's liberties, but give them a little you know bread and circuses, as it might be, to mm-hmm. keep going. But in 1945, what the government said, look. We will take care of your health, your education, your Social Security, your pensions. We will do everything for you. You don't have to worry. The state will do everything for you. And it was a war-torn country, a war-weary country. And people thought that sounds pretty good to me. And you can understand that. You can understand Mm. that, where they were coming from. Uh, Because they're ordinary working guys who've been in uniform for five years or in the munitions factories or down the mine or something. And they bought into that. But of course, you're quite right. That took away any sense of responsibility. And the sense of responsibility poor though people were in the 19th century, they produced things like friendly societies, mutual societies, trade unions, if you will. Uh, this kind of mm-hmm. thing, to look after themselves, to protect themselves, to make their own lives. They took responsibility to their own size, starting, one might argue, in the days of the Reform Act of 1832 and coming off from 1832. So what you're actually dealing with here uh, is people's self-reliance, which was growing through the Industrial Revolution uh, and Methodism, uh, encouraged that with temperance and so on and so forth. Not that I'm advocating temperance, dear boy, me of all people, Um, but this is the way it was going. Uh, And people were getting wealthier, the world was getting wealthier, there was still poverty in the country, so on and so forth. But we now have a generation, two generations, who would perhaps accept that welfareism is a lifestyle choice which is the reason we have so many Estonians, East Europeans and Poles in the United Kingdom that came over to work here uh, in, uh, in the European Union days. You know, we've only just come out. They all come to work. They come to work. And if they're, they're sometimes hard work, outdoor work. And what's actually happened is the youngsters, perfectly fit, healthy youngsters in Britain, say, I'm not working for £5 an hour or £10 an hour. It's not worth it. It's freezing. I'll get very close to that if I stay at home and watch daytime TV. You couldn't do a worse thing to a young man than give him money to watch daytime TV. Yes. You have taken yes. his soul away. You've debased mm-hmm. him morally. And that's what we've done with a whole generation. Uh, not everybody, of course, but enough that we needed to bring in outside uh, people who are very good and done a very good job. I married into a Polish family. Uh, they, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, came after the war They with First Polish Armored Division so on and so forth. Um, so I'm not anti-immigration. I, I, I want people to come in if they're prepared to work, but not come in for welfare. So we've seen this yes. great welfare thing. And the other major assault that we saw, Alex, the major assault we saw in the 70s, uh, uh, mainly in the 70s and the early 80s, was a destruction of the concept of the family as being mm-hmm. the natural mm-hmm. economic and social unit, which, of course, we know yes. it is. It's family. Family is the most important. It's never been invented better. <laughs> you know, for thousands yes. and thousands of years, it's been the family, then the tribe, if you will. And that works. Yes. That works because everybody then is in it together. They are in it yes. together yes. when it's family. Yes. Now, as you so said. small scale. Exactly. it's small scale. Now, you fill in lots of forms. Uh, there's bureaucrats. Uh, and this business about we're all in together. Well, you see, we're not. If you're in the public sector, you have index link pensions, which have been gone for years in the private sector in, in Britain. They're unaffordable, they are uh, unsackable. It doesn't matter if you're, you're either in the wealth creating sector or you're not. And even at the Adam Smith Institute, I've debated at universities. The Adam Smith Institute of all people, representatives, don't understand what a wealth creator is. Your wealth creator can be uh, a hairdresser, a a self employed hairdresser on her own. She is a wealth creator. Um, But you can have your chief executive at the town hall, who's usually a failed solicitor, on £200,000 a year. He's Mm -hmm. extracting money from the wealth creating system. Yes. We now have this extraordinary situation. We almost have as many people taking money out of the system as are putting in. And it's the little people putting in, and what have they closed down? What is this hurting? Self-employed, small businesses, medium-sized businesses, they're the ones being crushed by this martial law. Every single public sector servant, civil servant, has been paid the full whack for sitting at home since the beginning. How can we come out of this when the people who are enforcing martial law are still getting their full salary check and pension contributions every month. This has got to stop or we're going to be in lockdown forever, but sooner or later the tap will be turned off because there'll be no tax revenue. There'll be no money coming in. And nobody in the public sector understands that they actually do genuinely believe as do most people in this country, that the government can give money out every single day regardless and the money will never run out. Oh, it's the government. How can the government run out of money? Well, of course, they print it. Printing it degrades it. So again, it brings us back to gold, for example. Um, a basket mm-hmm. of fiat currencies has fallen since the beginning of this century, only 20 years, by 80% against gold. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've seen the degradation of fiat currencies. People are seeing it. People are either buying gold or they're buying Bitcoin for the same reasons. And that's why I believe we're on the same path, anything but to get out of this terrible problem of state-controlled paper money.
1: Absolutely. So so there's a quick thread I want to pull on there. So you've got these idiots who don't understand that they're killing the very goose that lays their egg. So it's it's people like you, me, the hairdresser, and all this sort of stuff that actually do the work, that actually provide, uh, will that have our, Um, half of our earnings stolen from us through an involuntary tax, but let's just say we still provide for these bureaucrats who then turn around and put us into martial law. So, you know, someone you just mentioned, oh, you know, they believe that the government doesn't run out of money because, you know, printing is one thing. The other option though, is that the government can bring forward uh, money from the future. In other words, debt. And, you know, we've seen how much debt has piled up, particularly in the last 10, 20 years, like it's, it's at a point where it's it's exponential. So that is effectively, I guess, selling out the future for our children and our children's children, et cetera. So what do you say to somebody like that um, psychopath, Stephanie Kelton, who wrote that monet, uh, modern monetary th- theory where you know she makes the, the statement that, oh, the amount of debt on the balance sheet doesn't matter because we can just keep going into debt. And who cares? What What do you say to someone as deranged as that?
2: Well, we do have uh, we do have this problem because actually the flash to bang time is quite is quite long. So we now have we've heard the buzzwords modern monetary theory, for example, which we know to be just Keynesian economics. We've seen all mm-hmm. that before, with the slight slight difference that Keynesian economics. Uh, was based on actually only going down the money printing route or the borrowing route uh, at the bottom of the uh, uh, of the graph, as you will, rather than at the top. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I don't agree with yeah. it. It's nonsense. It's always been nonsense. But that's how it works. That's how it's supposed to work. You know, going back well, what, very nearly 100 years, that theory. So modern monetary theory is not modern. It's very old fashioned that you can somehow print and borrow and print and mo- borrow. There is this hypothesis from these people, or it's not a hypothesis for them, they believe it to be an economic law, uh, that you can go on doing this ad infinitum, and that somehow you and your family or your business mustn't get into debt, mustn't spend more money than it earns, otherwise you'll be in trouble. But for some reason, that doesn't apply to the state, Mm. which is ludicrous. Why would it be different for me and my family or you and your business, we can't get into debt, we haven't got a little money printing machine, but the state has and somehow it's different. And if you take it, what uh, would be regardless ad absurdum, if it works, why don't they give us all a money-making machine, you know, a little machine, about yay big, for our upstairs bedroom. <laughs> and when we run out of money, we just go upstairs and print some more. But you know, laughing aside, it makes more sense than giving it to the banks, doesn't it? Yeah. At least, yeah. Yeah. At least that would put money into the local community. They give it to the banks, who then give it to people who've already got too much money anyway. So the asset rich uh, uh, for years and years and years. So the assets get bigger and bigger and bigger. So we now have a situation where my nephew in London, who's 30, he's an underwriter at Lloyd's of London. So he's a professional man well-educated man, hard-working man, the chance of him being able to buy a flat or anything like a zero. I bought zero, my yeah. first flat uh, in 1971 in London near the station. It wasn't fashionable, but it wasn't a rundown bit of London. I could get my train to the city every morning. I bought it for £6,500 on a mortgage. Wow. And I bought £500 into the wow. kitty for it. And that's... So for,
1: what's it worth now, 6500000 Or Before a million? they
2: degraded money. That's just before they degraded money. Mm. So this modern monetary theory, it gives you the, as as you will, of course you'll be totally familiar, but maybe there might be a few people watching this clip who are not the Cantillon effect. And it always means that you are the first receiver of money. You do okay. It's the guy at the end of the queue when money has been degraded, that's the problem. So if you were like me already had a flat in London, the fact that it's gone up by 15 times or 20 times or 30 times, I'm okay, thank you very much. But my nephew can't buy a flat because that's happened to him. So who's at the front of the queue? The same old people who are always at the front of the queue. Who at the back of the queue? The same old people who are always at the back of the queue. Uh, I don't know about Australia, but I suspect it's the same. The white working class in Great Britain are completely and totally unrepresented. The totally unwrapped, politically, totally unrepresented. Nobody's looking out for them at all. The collapse of the trade unions, which I have no brief for trade unionism particularly anyway, but leaving that aside, nobody speaks for them. So uh, now it's crept into the artisan class. So your butch, uh, your chippy, your sparky, your bricky, all these people are politically unrepresented. The only people uh, represented really are your professional middle class and those people in the public sector. Now, I have to say, as a research economist of some years, uh, if we were shipwrecked on a desert island, I'd be the first boat to be thrown out because I can't do anything. I can't even put a shelf up. I'm utterly useless. All the useful people in the society, people that can come and fix your boiler are unrepresented in society, see? This is where we were talking earlier before we came on air about an upside down world. Really useful people aren't treated as useful by the state. Uh, Really, if you're a diversity officer uh, at Manchester Infirmary, you're earning three times as much as a theatre nurse. So you've got a fully trained theatre nurse, my wife's an ex-medic by the way, so you've got a highly trained medic here. Uh, she's a chartered physiotherapist uh, with, you know, many years experience. She's getting paid probably, she's retired now from the NHS. She's probably getting paid half a diversity uh, officer who's on, you know, whatever he's on. He's probably on £70,000 a year and he's probably got a small team and he's got an index link pension. Who needs him? Who needs him? <laughs> nobody needs him, nobody. him in the yeah. morning and nobody would know. Yep. Yep, you
1: yep, you shoot yep, the guy yep. who mends the boiler, and you're in the poo. Yep, mate, you you just nailed that, and, and I think it for me that really brings home this idea because many days I'll sit around for a minute and I'll be like is the world crazy or am I actually crazy? Like I'm starting to, you know, almost like question. It's almost like, you know, we're living in one big Ash experiment. If you're familiar with the Ash experiment where they, you know, draw the different lines and everyone else around you says, the wrong line is the long one. And it's like, wait a minute. But, you know, talking to you here just sort of helps me (laughs) realize that it's, maybe it's not me (laughs) (laughs) that, you know, that there is something fundamentally wrong here. But I think this, this derangement syndrome of living, like we're living a fantasy basically, you know, like you said, you know, things are upside down. The things we need are apparently not important, but the things we don't need are now relegated to, uh, elevated to importance. And and for me, the the way I kind of look at it, I was on a discussion a couple of weeks ago on this Clubhouse app, and, and I kind of explained how, you know, capital and capitalism is, you know, capital is real, and it's, you know, it's natural resources, and it's human resources, our time and energy, you know, and, and we sort of blend those two, and we create wealth, we create capital, and, and capitalism is the process of doing so. Now, what we have in the world today is some sort of, I wouldn't even know what to describe it as, it's some sort of Frankenstein blend of Keynesianism, socialism, cronyism, uh, fantasism, or whatever, but that you know, operates by just arbitrary made up rules, which are, you know, created new rules are created every day, which are contradictory and, you know, divergent and all sorts of things. But it's sort of, it's almost this, you know, world that doesn't really exist, but we live in it through some sort of shared fictional belief. But, you know, for me, the way I explained it is it's like jumping, it's like someone who doesn't believe in gravity decides to run and jump off a cliff. And for the first three or four seconds while he's rising in the air, he thought he beat gravity. But if you zoom out a little bit, uh, longer than the four or five seconds, because fundamentally this century has been about a couple seconds on the, you know, from an evolutionary time scale, is that we think we're doing something here, but gravity will catch up. Like reality does catch up. As we play this fantasy and actually erode the real capital base that we built society on, you know, as we destroy the people who are uh, useful, you know, the boilers, the chippies, the electricians, you know, the the actual people who do the work as we bury them. And as more of them just sort of give up and say, well, what the fuck's the point of working when this idiot here is earning three times more than me uh, doing something completely useless. And the idiot on the other side is doing nothing, earning the same amount. So fuck it. I'll just do nothing. So as we do that, I think reality is gonna come and catch up with us much quicker than what we're anticipating. And, and, and unfortunately, I think a lot of people are gonna get you know, massively hurt along the way. And, and, and that's gonna be, you know, the idiots will get hurt, but unfortunately a lot of good people will get hurt, which I think is, a, is sad. I don't know if you've got any comments on that, but I think that segues us really nicely into the gold and silver discussion.
2: Yes, okay. I think you're absolutely right. What you describe is the cartoon character, don't you? That's screeching off the mm, cliff mm. edge. And it mm-hmm. goes further yeah. for the effect to get the laugh of the cartoon. Yes. They go yes. much further out before they fall. And then they look down and then, surprise, they're going to fall down the canyon. You're absolutely right. Now, I don't do so much lectures as I used to at universities, uh, economics faculties at um, Durham University, Cambridge University, so, I, so cool. quite a, I used to do quite a lot of that as a guest lecturer. But what is interesting is what we do actually have. And your average average person thinks, certainly your political activist, assumes that we live in a capitalist society, which, of course, we don't. We don't have anything close to capitalism. What we have, Mm -hmm. which would have been in my day when I did my professional exams, would have been called mercantilism. And I'm going back to the 1960s. It would have been called mercantilism. Uh, it Well, it's not free capitalism at all. Uh, well, today, we call it crony capitalism, sometimes it's referred to, but that mm-hmm. is mercantilism. Now, here's something that normally gets the undergraduates wound up like a clockwork duck. And that is, I try and explain to them what actually system that we have, or well, certainly when we were the, in the European Union, the system we had. Now, the system of the European Union is actually fascist. It's mm-hmm. fascism. Now, We get so used to hearing this as a pejorative term. It's things that uh, the National Union of Students chant and they shout because Mm -hmm. they haven't had the benefit of a traditional education. If youngsters understood and were properly educated, they would understand that fascism is a political system. And it Mm -hmm. used to be quite a respectable political system in Italy in the 1920s, so on and so forth, uh, before it sort of went wrong and was abused as all these... Uh, systems always are end up being abused of course they do but basically fascism uh, is a combination of the bureaucracy the state the banks the politicians all together to subvert the independence of the individual and i've never mm-hmm. heard anybody contradict that anybody who's made an effort to actually find out what fashion really is you've got, you've got you've got to look at that's what it is and if you think about the european union that is what it is it's a cartel of big business, which is represented by lobbyists, an unelected commission who make the law, not the parliament—that's the mending chamber—and uh, and co-located, it will intellectually with the banks. So the uh, mm-hmm. European uh, the, uh, Central Bank, for example, uh, is part and parcel of rescuing any bank that goes wrong. So if the bank goes wrong, they underwrite it with taxpayers' money. So. People say, "Ah, oh, the central bank is the bank of uh, of last uh, of last resort." It is the taxpayer who is, is the, yes, the bank. Yes, we are, <laughs> and still we don't hang any. <laughs> so this is this is the problem that we have. It's the problem of people simply not understanding. And the nearest this always gets me sometimes into a little bit of trouble. And you're in Brazil, but uh, um, this is a little bit like the Renaissance Catholic Church and their grip on the people with fear of hell and dynam- damnation, and purgatory. The government is there to make your life easier, to protect you. The world's going to boil. You know, in the old days, it was the individual would boil in hell. Now we're all going to boil if we don't buy yeah, exactly. in to fake uh, global warming. And it's been 20 yeah. years, now we know it's fake. But behind these red curtains, it's snow outside. You know, it's, <laughs> it's freezing, it's freezing. We've had this for 20 years, but the world's going to boil. Well, when's it going to boil? You know, it doesn't, it's just not happening. Uh, We've got climate change by and by bits and pieces bit up bit down we have done as long as mankind was on the planet. But the fact that we're all going to die if we if we don't move all our cars to lithium batteries and all. you couldn't invent any of this could you you couldn't invent it the sheer crass stupidity of everything doing net zero in this country everything's got to be electric by uh, 2030. Boris Johnson. We're going to have all electric cars. Jesus Nobody God. actually understands that if you plug your electric car in, somebody has to manufacture electricity from somewhere. The electricity. <laughs> but they think it's magic. It's magic. Yeah. <laughs> and we live so we live in we live in fairyland with politicians, fairyland with bureaucrats, and most of the punters walking around the town with their dog muzzles on are living in fairyland
1: as well. They're just miserable now. <sighs> Okay, before before I, I want to ask one last question before uh, we get into the, the, the golden Bitcoin topic, which is you mentioned in nineteen forty five, heavy socialist government comes into the UK, uh, up to ninety five uh, pence on the uh, on the pound uh, taxes. So so two parts of this question is did did was there a revolt that pushed socialism back down again or did it somehow morph into something worse over the last 70 years? Because what what I'm curious about is, is there a pattern re-emerging that represents that time period at the moment, or is is history repeating itself, itself? is it rhyming, or is it just some completely different song at the moment? Is, Is it dumber than back then? I think what
2: the problem is, when you have a really rabid socialist government, which we had from 1945 to about 1953, I seem to remember, although I, I was watching the coronation on a little tiny TV when the, the Queen was <laughs> the Queen's coronation. I still remember it. It's my first memory. Uh, but that was then when Winston Churchill came in. But when you move, when you have a socialist government, uh, extreme socialist government, and it was, and people still in this country don't necessarily recognise that. They don't know how extreme it was. What do you do is you move your Conservative government to the left. Mm-hmm. Every time you have mm-hmm. a left-wing government, it moves the incoming government to the left because they don't unpick it. They don't try and change it. They don't try and deregulate it. They don't try and change anything. So it moves it to the left. Now, when we had Maggie Thatcher, for a small time, she stemmed it. She didn't move it much Mm. back, but she did stem it and she did some good things. Uh, She got rid of the nationalized industries, which were absurd. But of course, nationalized industries were then replaced by the state, which regulates the industry. Fascism is that it's all about Mm -hmm. fascism, which is the state regulates. industry unlike communism which owns the industry Uh, and they're the two differences but it's the flip side of the same coin now what we have here is when you have welfareism, when you have left-wing statist governments which socialist socialism is you actually end up with this rather weird thing that everything becomes statist so when we had the advent of tony blair who came in the brave new world and everybody waved their union jacks (laughs) which always is a (laughs) <laughs> Makes me suspect you've got a scoundrel there when he's handing out Union Jack yeah. something. There's one place you don't like, mate, <laughs> and that's our country. <laughs> uh, so, so all that carried on, but it's status. So now, and of course, we've moved now far for this government we have under Boris Johnson is much, much further to the left than Tony Blair's Labour administration of 1997. Much further to the left. The Labour Party mm-hmm. could never mm-hmm. have got away with martial law. Yes. And, the, and, and empowering the police to stop citizens on the street. Do you know we had somebody the other day was fined in his family having fish and chips from a takeaway. Takeaway is perfectly legal. You can go to a takeaway uh, meal and have your fish and chips. He was having it in the car so it didn't get cold and he was fined for not driving home and eating it at home. This is the kind of world, and I've seen the Melbourne police in action too, pretty disgusting moving people around because they're too oh. on the beach, too far away from their flat. And yeah, but how do we push back against this when we have a generation now who think that's normal?
1: They think it's, it's normal. I, I think what what you described there, I think the, the technical term is sort of the Overton window, right? It's this. Yes. It's, yes. The, it's the acceptable. Yeah. Uh, window of discourse um, for, for, for those who don't know what that means who are listening to this uh, do a quick Wikipedia search but in, in essence it means that you know the, the Overton window is the acceptable frame or you know window of discussion and as it gets shoved to one side um, you know the, the the acceptable range of discussion is in there and the only way to move the Overton window is to you know to, to radically uh, shift the conversation away from it but unfortunately like you said is most people, instead of doing that, instead of having the courage to do that, they just, you know, step into their little spot and, you know, yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir, and agree with uh, with the common discourse. So, coming then to gold, Bitcoin, sound money as a as a mechanism to to, I guess, abolish the Overton window altogether. Is you know I I think we we obviously agree on all of this stuff, and we'll talk in a minute about sort of the 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 potential divergences of Bitcoin and gold, despite being the the same part of the you know the, the two sides of the same coin. But I think first and foremost, you know what gold and Bitcoin represent is sound money, and what sound money stands against is this idea of fiat money, and fiat money being a form of money that is issued by the decree of some sort of institution. And that institution gives itself the monopoly on the production of money. And therein, like I always argue when I'm talking to people about why Bitcoin is important, is I believe the monopoly on money is what gives the state, the government, the ability to actually operate a bankrupt business model, Uh, and create not a a customer service provider relationship, but a overlord subject relationship, which is what we live in today. So by, you know, moving to gold, by opting out of the the fiat money, which effectively feeds the beast, by us opting into their system, we're actually feeding the jailer that jails us. (laughs) And we're wondering why, you know, we can't get out of jail. It's because we're, we're giving them the money to jail us. So we're giving them the capacity to do so. So can you talk a little bit about how gold traditionally represented a non-fiat money? And as a, you know, as the actual rightful, I guess, natural organic emergent money. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And then let's talk about how Bitcoin represents a reinvention of that.
2: Sure. Um... Gold. Well, of course, I'm a well-known gold bug uh, for all the reasons that people are Bitcoin bugs, for the same reason I want to get out of the state-controlled uh, money system. And, of course, what you've been talking about there, you're quite right. And, of course, it's not even new, is it? A hundred years ago, more than a hundred years ago, Rothschild said the same thing. He said, it doesn't matter who you vote for. It's a question of who controls the money. That's, that's mm-hmm. the key. Who controls the money? So then you ask yourself, the natural question is, for example, Um, Who is the most influential person in the world or more influential than Boris Johnson? Well, it's Bill Gates, which is not another politician. It's people like Bill Gates or George Soros who have wealth beyond human imagination. So they actually are the movers and shakers today, non-political, and they can do what they like. So, for example, they've bought mainstream media here. They've bought Sky TV, not in Australia, but they bought uh, the, the left have bought Sky TV in the United Kingdom. Uh, Channel 4 is on the left. Newspapers have been bought on the left. We actually have uh, Daily Telegraph journalists suggesting that Bill Gates should be given a Nobel Prize. Now, don't tell me that money hasn't changed hands for that, <laughs> because every man has his price. Uh, some people's prices, of course, are extremely low. Uh, you can buy some people, you know, for a drink. I am one of them. Uh, but this is one of the problems that we have, and... Uh, is trying to get out of this bubble, but it's the same with the BBC. Uh, people don't believe the BBC, they've disengaged with the BBC, but they send their cheque for £150 every year. And you ask them why, they say, well, it's a criminal offence if I don't. And I try and explain, if none of us did it, the BBC would collapse, which is what they want. Uh, but people, especially in Britain, people aren't used to disobeying the law. Yeah, you know, we're, we're a law abiding nation. Mm generally speaking, and that's one of the problems. So anyway, gold. Now, here's the good news with gold. The thing I like about gold, and my gold is in uh, coin of the realm. Mine is in sovereigns and Britannia's. It's coin of the realm, which I like. It doesn't carry any VAT, and it doesn't carry capital gains tax. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is I can do with a whole pocket load of them, for example. I can go, well, let's take a, a sovereign, which is 100 years old. That sovereign uh, in 1905, for example, pulling a figure out of the air, 1905, that would buy you bed and breakfast in a g- decent hotel in London in 1905. A gold sovereign today will do the same thing. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, it hasn't degraded. And in 200 years time, that gold sovereign will still buy you bed and breakfast. But moreover, the important thing about gold, if I had that sovereign in my hand, it would buy me bed and breakfast in any capital city in the world, in the world. I can go anywhere with that and exchange that gold coin so that's what i like about it now here's the downside about gold because i'm not starry-eyed about gold you know i'm an old geezer i've been around the block i can tell you that i'm not starry-eyed i know that one of the problems we have is that the, the price is manipulated down. so uh, my gold coins are in a vault in london not a ri- not a bank vault a private vault i wouldn't Trust a bank with anything at all, it's in a mm-hmm. private vault. Um, you would think the price of gold, therefore, is moved on whether me or people like me bought or sold gold, uh, my gold coins. You would imagine uh, a traditional economics. Uh, uh, um, buy and sell disciplines would, but it doesn't happen. Now we know that doesn't happen, and we ask why that doesn't happen. Is because central banks don't like gold. Every time you buy a piece of gold, of course, you kick a central banker in the balls. So they don't like you owning gold because it takes away their control. So mm-hmm. there they have. Uh, they don't want to hold gold. So what they do is they facilitate through the SEC in New York, Wall Street, and London's the same. You can sell, make it short. You can short gold. So whereas gold today should be at least $3,000 an ounce, and it would be if it wasn't manipulated by the JP Morgans of this world perfectly legitimately. Sometimes they get caught bending a few rules, they get fined, but they make it up in a few, in a few weeks. So this is what they're allowed to do. With the, it's totally state-complicit and regulatory state-complicit. And we also know that there are probably 800 pieces of paper representing one piece of gold. So although I'm not trading, and most people aren't trading their gold, most people are uh, not selling their gold. You'd have to be mad to sell any gold at the moment, or at all, maybe. Uh, so it's not based on that, it's based on manipulation by the gangsters on Wall Street and the, and the gangsters uh, uh, you know, in, in central banking and banking all over the world. So that's one of the downsides with it. Um, and that is, that is a problem with gold. Uh, and it's, it, you know, it's not an easy ride with gold. It's not an easy ride. Uh, and I'll come on in a minute, I'll come on to some other things where there is a problem with gold, but I believe it to be the same problem with Bitcoin, which not everybody accepts until I've explained it. Then they scratch their head. They may still not agree with me, but at least they're scratching their head and that's the start.
1: Okay, interesting, interesting. So so there's a couple of things. I mean, I might tack on to that. So I when I was a bit younger... Uh, in my, what was I? This is 2011 now. So, so 10 years ago. So I was in my early 20s. Uh, that was when I, I I traded my way through the whole 2007, 2008 crash as a young, dumb 19, 20-year-old kid who thought he was brilliant, made a bunch of money on options trading in the beginning and then lost everything and managed to dig myself almost a quarter of a million dollars into debt. And after that, that I you know had no choice but to go and knock on doors sell, selling paid television to dig my way out of the hole that I was in and every night I would read about uh, what the hell did I do wrong? You know, how do markets function? You know what is economics? You know what what the hell is this QE thing that these people are starting to do? And I started to come around to the you know I, I still remember the days of uh, Mark Faber and uh, Gerald Salente and you know all of those guys who were spruiking uh, gold. Doug Casey and Peter Schiff back in the day and. And, and, and I started to understand, you know, the, the raison d'etre, I guess, for, for gold and silver. And, and I, I, I did personally quite well for myself during, during the 2011-2012 bull run uh, in gold and silver. I remember picking up silver at $70 and selling it right at the peak at $50. Bucks and both, both physical and, and paper silver. But, and I remember actually back then initially dismissing Bitcoin. So, you know, I, I just thought, huh, I'll stick with my real solid money here, you know, the, the idiots can stick with their digital funny money, you know, to, to my to my everlasting, I guess, regret. But in any case, we 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 live and learn. So I'm by no means uh, against the raison d'etre for something like gold. But for me, what I recognize as its fundamental weakness is something that I think some gold bugs uh recognize as its strength. Which is its physicality. And for me, I actually think the the nature of its physicality makes it easy to confiscate, control, and manipulate, which I think is gold's biggest weakness. Is it's it's it is the thing that is most easy to co-opt. Because it's extremely hard if you want to build a capital base in gold, where the hell are you gonna put it other than someone else's vault. I mean, unless you're going to dig up a hole in your backyard and hope to God that nobody ever finds it, you know, and, and being able to move it around is quite, you know, dangerous, I guess, because it is a bearer asset. So, so that physicality, it's it's physical nature, I think is a, is a fundamental weakness, particularly moving into a digital world, because one example I always use for someone is, you know, if you want to send somebody uncensorable money around the world, you're not going to, you know, Put some gold flakes into an envelope and send it around the world. You know it, that that's actually not very useful uh, in a world that's becoming more uh, hyperconnected and digitized. Even though, even though I believe that we need to localize and fragment the the local, uh, I guess the decentralized local nature of where the world is heading, whether we want to or not. You know, th- this whole global globalism is going to either break or we're going to reverse it. But in that kind of world, we need a mechanism for somebody in Australia to trade with somebody in Zimbabwe, to trade with somebody in China, to trade with somebody in America, to trade with someone in the UK. Gold just won't cut it because if we, we can't send the physical stuff around. So all we're gonna do is rely on some sort of central institution to issue us some form of digital token over the gold, which again is subject to concentration, centralization, and then confiscation, manipulation, et cetera. So so I just think gold, whilst it was absolutely necessary in a world that was uh, less connected and less digital, I think its physicality actually is the final nail in the coffin for it. So, So I don't know if you've got any comments on that at this point, before we go into your point about why you think gold and Bitcoin both have a problem.
2: Of course, you're completely right on all of that. None of that I can possibly dispute at all. <clears throat> and we know, that, of course, in 1720, the French government confiscated gold because of its physicality. We also know uh, that Roosevelt, of course, confiscated gold in probably the biggest historical heist in modern history. He stole the American people's gold. But though he's still revered today, funnily enough, but uh, we seem to love gangsters, don't we, and 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 uh, highwomen for some reason. Uh, but... Uh, you're quite right in all of this. You're quite right in all of this, um, and you have to then work out why you're holding gold. And I've been accumulating gold coinage uh, for probably the last twenty-five years. I've probably accumulated most of mine at nine hundred dollars an ounce, perhaps, or some at two hundred and fifty dollars an ounce. You know, it's been, mm-hmm. you know, it's been going like that, and I still accumulate a little bit here and there. But I have uh, I have a role for those gold coins because that is for me personally, uh, it isn't to trade. It isn't to sell. It's then to a much younger wife for her then to be able to go to that vault by and by, go upstairs to the vault where they actually deal in gold and then exchange it for whatever the currency is of the day in order to get through to the next month. So I have quite a specific role for my gold. And I have, I wouldn't say that I've made any money out of it because that's not, gold isn't an investment. Gold isn't, a lot of people make that mistake, you know, don't they? They think gold yeah. is a, isn't an investment. It's, it's, it's a savings vehicle. And it has preserved yep. my wealth. And that is all I require it to do. And I suspect at my age, there are millions of people like me at my age, who, whose only goal is to preserve the wealth that they actually have. And such of the coins that are left will go to the next generation. Now, so I'm all right with that. I'm happy with that. And of course, we also know as we go back originally to gold, I mean, certainly the the the, the, the 17th century, the 18th century, when money, gold was money, real money, gold was money. But of course, then you had, then you had a certificate for the gold because you didn't want to actually carry it down the track because of high because of that. And that's actually brought in your gold asset back, if you will, your gold back pound note or your or mm-hmm. whatever it is, all these things. All of which I understand and I accept that um, gold at the moment is difficult to deal with in so far as if you want to settle bills in, uh, in where it ever happens to be. You, you're going to have to have some counterparty risk. So you've got to have if it's if it's centralized somewhere, let's say not in, within the state, but within a reputable bullion dealer who can certificate the fact that you've got it. And, and you can have maybe that the real ways of dealing with that kind of exchange. But you're absolutely right, nothing is foolproof. And, of course, if they want to confiscate it, although mine is in a deep vault in London, don't come and rob me, folks, it's not here. Don't come and get me here, it's no good. It's in a deep vault in London. It's not in a bank which are owned by the state or part-owned by the state these days. It's in a private high-security vault, okay? And that's fine. Now, you would say, well, how can the state steal it from me? How can the state... Well, of course, um, they can't get access to the vault. They can't do that. They don't have a key. They don't have the right thumbprint. They don't have any of that kind of stuff. They don't have it. But of course, we might have not been having this conversation two or three years ago, but now, as I sit here under martial law, and I know your countryman, Julius Ashan, is is being held without the benefit of habeas corpus. I know that the fundamental principle of Australian English, which is English law, and indeed American law, not corpus juris in the European Union, certainly is the one of the main planks is the presumption of innocence. HMSRC and IRS have waved that away. There is no presumption of innocence by the taxman in America or Great Britain. They can assume they have access to our bank records for the last six years at the very least. And if you buy over £10,000 worth of gold, it has to be logged. And they have a way of checking that. That has gone to a central register. So they know I have the gold. So... All they need to do is to knock on the door, and this is now the way we're going. Now this could be this could be in a month's time. This could be a month's time, and say so we have if the, uh, you've got to give up your gold for a fixed price, like Roosevelt said, uh, for twenty-five dollars an ounce or whatever it is. The the state's going to buy from you from two thousand dollars an ounce or whatever it is, a thousand pounds an ounce. We're going to buy it from you at that price, but you know the open price is fifteen hundred or, or it's more than that, whatever. So you know that they can do that and they will knock on the door. You have no, and there's no court of appeal. There's no serious court of appeal. They can just say, and you won't tell them. I won't tell them where my money is and I won't give them the key. But without habeas corpus, they can take me away. They can put me in solitary confinement like they did with Julia and the sand and leave me there until I hand over the gold. They let me out to open open the door. They can do that. They can do that. Now here's where it gets a bit controversial. This is where it gets a bit controversial with that power with with no presumption of innocence with access and martial law and all the other things which could come down the road with the collapse of fiat currency they could still go back through any bitcoiners uh uh banks or any companies but they can look it's all there and if you can't account for it they can assume that you're holding cryptocurrency outside the state system bitcoin for example they can assume that Mm -hmm. And they can say, Mm -hmm. we are making that assumption, you're the finance director, or or, or it's an individual, we're going to take you away with uh, 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 no habeas corpus, we're going to lock you up until you tell us where that money went. And if it's Bitcoin, we want access to your wallet. They don't need to get to the wallet, you see, they don't need to do that these days with complete and total totalitarian power, they only need to get you. Which is why my money isn't in Switzerland. Switzerland said, "Well, why don't you put it?" I've got friends in Switzerland. I don't have enough, incidentally, to be important enough. I just got a friend in Switzerland who does it. He said, "Well, you put it in Switzerland. They can't get it." Well, they can get it. They can get it because they've mm. got me. They've got the body. Mm-hmm. And this is—I can't see any difference between that and Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin is too small at the moment. Bitcoin and gold, to an extent, in private private holdings in this country and America, is still relatively small. It's only about. I don't know, 1% of the average portfolio. Gold is quite small. Uh, There isn't enough gold held by the private citizens in Britain to really go through that kind of procedure yet. But as I spoke to Stefan yesterday, I see Bitcoin turnover going to 5 trillion, certainly, and probably beyond. And I'm sure you do too. Suddenly, when it gets to that kind of money, they're interested. The state is interested. And they will offer you a deal to go to state crypto You could buy our state crypto, come into the state crypto system, but you've got to, we've got to absorb Bitcoin on a big scale because it's now gone to 5 trillion or 10 trillion. And then suddenly it's become interesting to them. And if you don't cooperate, you're banged up in pokey until such time as they release you. There's nothing much you can do about it. And that's where I see the danger of confiscation. I take every point you've made, Alex, about the international trading system. I understand all that. But until that happens, we need some major players coming out I want to hear Mercedes say, we will accept Bitcoin for our motor cars. I want to hear all these things. I want to hear Siemens saying, we will accept Bitcoin for our chemicals and our electronics. I, until that happens, the power of big business behind it, the only thing that can cripple the power of central banks and politicians is big business. That's got to be split. At the moment, they're mm-hmm. all in the same camp. Mm-hmm. We've got to split it. I am very pro-Bitcoin. I'm a huge supporter of the concept of Bitcoin. I own Bitcoin, I'm gonna buy more Bitcoin. <clears throat> but my point that I'm making is, at the moment, I think there's a degree of naivety with Bitcoin holders that this can't happen, and it can happen. And I think we should be building our defenses now, not waiting till they're on our tail.
1: 100% agree. So so it's funny, before, before you brought this up, I actually had a note here called uh, that just says, information is harder to censor and and I guess the 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 best um your, your final point there about building the defenses now is categorically important and whether it's Stefan or Matt O'Dell and a lot of other people who are prominent in the Bitcoin space we always preach this idea of get your bloody Bitcoin off the exchanges and into some sort of private holdings now that's not a panacea that doesn't solve everything because like you said Uh, You know, these institutions and organizations can go back, find out what you bought in the exchanges, see where it was uh, moved. The the Bitcoin blockchain is public so they can view potentially where that is. The beauty, though, is unlike uh, gold, which I can either, you know, if I'm the state agent, I can beat you up. And force you to give me the key, um, and I can actually validate that the gold is there, and that somehow you know we can get access to it because it's physical. I have real plausible deniability uh, that I may have lost the key that gives access to my Bitcoin, and there's not me nor anybody else who can regenerate that key because it's gone. And furthermore, what I would also argue is most Bitcoiners, and I would, I would think that most Bitcoiners will sit, particularly the more, you know, radical revolutionary nature like myself, would burn our keys before giving it over to the state uh, as, a, as an example. So I think we it's a more defensible position. Now, it's not entirely defensible, of course, nothing is. Um, I actually don't. Uh, I'm probably one of the more pessimistic Bitcoiners in in the space who believe that this next five to 10 years, um, and probably the, the the shorter term will be a lot more messier, is going to be extremely difficult. It, it's sort of, the, the state is like a rabid dog in the corner, uh, you know, and, and it's going to swipe and try and scratch, you know, the eyes out of anything that is potentially threatening it. And at the moment, you know, the, the largest threat on the horizon is Bitcoin. Now, luckily for us, at this point in time, they are Incompetent and arrogant enough. By and large, there's a few of them who actually understand that Bitcoin is a threat. But by and large, most of them are so arrogant and stupid that they think that it's, you know, the internet funny money still. And like you said, when it hits that sort of three, four, five, ten trillion, uh, the there they will start to notice it. And in their desperation, maybe a better analogy is. um, is a person drowning and you know bringing whoever is around them down with them you know they they will attempt to do that but but i would argue that information has a much like bitcoin bitcoin's innovation in transforming money into a form of information that has all of the attributes of gold but does it better is the the checkmate move to the state because it'll be extraordinarily difficult for them to jail everybody and try and prove that everybody has access to which bit of Bitcoin. It's it's a much 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 harder thing to do than um, you know confiscating physical gold. Now it again, notwithstanding that, I don't put it past them that they will one hundred percent attempt to do that. And this is where, like you said, building our defences now having multiple wallets, having distributed you know, locations around you know, where, where your Bitcoin is stored, et cetera, is fundamentally important at this point in time because we, we need to do that. And then secondarily, your thing about businesses accepting it and holding it. I think before even accepting it, what we need to be looking for, and I think this is obviously already happening with people like Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy and you know, other public companies, putting it on their balance sheet. So what What I think I'll rephrase what you said earlier is we need to see players with balance sheets, getting some of their skin in the Bitcoin game. And as that happens, the, the game theory starts to change because then you all of a sudden have institutions that, you know, through what I call economic Darwinism, they don't want to hold, you know, uh us dollars or euros that are just evaporating in value they're they're going to want to put some of their cash balance into something that is you know is not apologies for the noise that is not going to be uh inflated away so so i think that the path to five trillion and i would argue that this is where the game theoretic uh defense naturally emerges with bitcoin on its path to five trillion those large balance sheets are going to be part of what takes it there and makes the, the Bitcoin as a target much more difficult because those companies won't put gold on their balance sheet. Maybe some will, but they will, they will first and foremost put Bitcoin on the balance sheet long before they do gold. And I think that's where we've got a mixture of defense here. We've got one, which is the economic Darwinism that is, uh, you know, inherent in any institution with half a brain that wants to protect their purchasing power and wants to not leave their balance sheet in evaporating fiat money, and number two is our ability to use Bitcoin's uh, nature as information to, you know, make it a difficult target for confiscation. So, so that would be my uh, response there. And again, I would say that that is much harder to do with gold. That versus doing it with Bitcoin so I don't know if you've got any comments on that uh, yes well I don't disagree you see and it's a question of really
2: of emphasis so <clears throat> what you have to do is look at your <clears throat> what is the mission statement of the asset if you will uh, and mm. if it's uh, if it's gold depending on what you want now I for me personally as an investor now I want maintenance of of purchasing power Gold mm-hmm. fills that bill for me. Uh, then, of course, it's a question of diversification. I made, I've made this point on a number of uh, occasions. Uh, being a professional investor, uh, uh, diversification is, is for me is important. So I want to have uh, precious metals. I want to have Bitcoin. I want to have some real estate I, because that's all eggs in one basket is a dangerous game to play, uh, and I think. And I'm I'm very overweight precious metal, and there'll be lots of people very overweight Bitcoin. And I understand that, but it's a it's a slightly dangerous game to play. And when I look, uh, uh, and people have been following me in Bitcoin. I've had a lot of interaction on Twitter with because I didn't come into the Bitcoin game until I knew about Bitcoin. I've been following Bitcoin. I hadn't bought Bitcoin until October. Mm -hmm. So I know about these. uh, I know about this. So I looked at a lot of people. Now there aren't many what I would call professionals in the game. Uh, everybody who's interviewed me is a professional. You know how many bees make five. You've been around, you, you know the game, but there's a lot of musicians and there's a lot of uh, art people, all, but nice people, articulate people, clever people, others they wouldn't be in Bitcoin. They're already clever, otherwise they wouldn't be in Bitcoin. But I think what they have not actually hauled in that it isn't the final solution. It doesn't. It's not a one-shot kill. Uh, it's it's it could get close to there. It could be definitive. I hope it is because I'm a huge believer in it, which is why I've got some. But of course, it depends what your time horizon is. So, for example, uh, are you prepared to take the slightly roller coaster ro- ride of Bitcoin? Does that matter to you? If you put it aside for maybe ten years, for example, it doesn't matter to you. It's like equities. But I always used to say when I was investment manager, you've got to give a seven year window to equities. You know, you've got to be careful with equities. If you want to come back seven years, don't keep checking the price, put it in the bottom drawer. walk away, which is what I've done with gold. And it served me well. The other thing I would say is and I mentioned I briefly hinted at it a bit earlier. I'm 71 years old. And if you told me even five years ago. That I could be sitting here locked in my house under martial (laughs) law. There is nothing now that would surprise me. And we have seen in history and I'm sure you know your history as I know mine. I'm also a military historian, a social historian. I'm published uh, in these matters as well. Um, They can if the state with a politicized police force, and we do have, and sadly so do you in Australia, um, they can take anything somehow from you if they want to, because they've got you, uh, and they can do anything to you or your family or whatever it is to make you brass up whatever numbers you need for whatever asset you've got, whether it's Bitcoin or gold or anything. And we're living in a world now, sadly, where we seem to be going in that direction. Now, what I believe to be the case is, and I think you're right, if there's corporate holdings, but you can see how easy it is um, for them to have a, uh, a sunset clause, for example, if it didn't suit the polit- politicians of the Sunset Bank, you must, uh, uh, corporately, you must unload your Bitcoin for the new cryptocurrency that we have at the back. You've got five years to do it. Or there's any number of things they can do in a totalitarian state. With a mm, politicized mm. police force, we are nowhere near that at the moment. I know we're not near that at the moment, and we might not even see it in my lifetime. But you will see this in yours. You will see this in yours. And all I'm saying is, you can be really clever technically, as clever as you like. But if they can get to your body, you know. What was a great phrase? I can't remember who was a uh, who said. Uh, if you've got a man by the balls, you'll find his heart and mind quickly follow. And so <laughs> this is the world we're watching now. So I do believe that what we need, what Bitcoiners need is not political support because political support is by nature crap, corrupt, corrupt, not banking support because it's by nature corrupt. What we need is big business leading yes. figures maybe slightly maverick. I mean, I don't know. I hold no breach. I don't like him individually. Rather ghastly little man. Uh, Richard Branson, for example. But if he Mm -hmm. was to pick up the mantle of Bitcoin and say, I will will accept Bitcoin uh, for your uh, transatlantic flights or your holidays in the West Indies, Bitcoin is fine. We'll take it. We have a Bitcoin account. We need some, one of the leading, or lots of, Elon Musk maybe, who's spoken well of Bitcoin. Um, Although... (laughs) I wouldn't buy one of his cars either but that's, that's leaving that aside um if we had a few of those people who are f- not just big leading businessmen rich men fashionable fashionable yes. leaders of the business yep. community and that i think is our protection rather than an intricate system of wallets or tech or or, or, or of technical uh, protection it's a mass movement of Bitcoin. It, it's, it has to become a mass movement to make it. And if you fund and if you think about that uh, for a second, gold is mass movement. It's had 5,000 years to do it. I mean, gold is, is, is a mass movement in India, the Indian subcontinent. I mean, the whole middle class is, is, is based on gold, uh, you know, or, mm-hmm. or ownership of gold in some form. Uh, so it's already slightly mass. I agree. I think gold is gonna be around for another 5,000 years. I'm not disputing if everything with a following breeze with Bitcoin goes along. People look back and say, "See how much more money I've got with Bitcoin than I would have had with gold. But I'm not altogether sure that's the point with some investors.
1: Yeah, interesting. so, so I've got two comments for that, and I know and I know we've run over the original 60 minutes, but I've really enjoyed this, so thank you for hanging on Godfrey. so so two things uh, one is I mean, we've recently just seen Elon place. Bitcoin in his bio um, and a series of other so-called uh, fashionable celebrity type uh, business owners. So the founder of Reddit, uh, Naval Ravikant, the founder of uh, Angel List, and all these others. So, so I think I think that watershed moment is is happening. And, and I think that's only going to accelerate. I think a, a, big, a big part of that was Michael Saylor via MicroStrategy placing 80, 90% of their corporate treasury into Bitcoin last year and, and sort of leading the, play, leading the way for that. Because now you have this, what I, I was on a call with a fund manager in Australia uh, three, four months ago. And I actually reframed Bitcoin in his mind. I said, now, I said, five years ago, uh, as a fund manager, buying Bitcoin was a risk. Today, as a fund manager, not buying Bitcoin is a risk is a reputational risk. Because now you're gonna be looked at as like, were you the idiot who was the only one that didn't do it? So, so I think that, that game theory is starting to change, m- m- both for the, the, the fund managers, but also for these fashionable uh, business leaders, call them. And, and I think Elon is a, is a perfect example. Branson would be another great example. I mean, we've also just seen, again, I really do not like Ray Dalio. I think he's just the perfect product of the traditional financial system. But even he is now apparently warming up to Bitcoin. They're buying 20,000, 21,000 Bitcoin and adding that to their, um, to their holdings uh, as part of, I think, their alpha fund or whatever it was. So, so slowly, I, I think this is happening. And it's one of those things where if we look at the mimetic nature of how trends spread particularly in today's day and age i mean we saw this corona hysteria spread across the world in a matter of weeks you know thanks to some you know stupid government uh you know fear mongering i think this sort of uh you know desire to like holy shit you know something's wrong here and elon's doing it and branson's doing it and this guy's doing it i think that represents a real opportunity for that uh bitcoin acceleration to occur so so that's Sort of one point. So I would 100% agree with that as uh, as one of the things. But like you said, there's no there's no silver bullet here. I call it the lead bullet strategy. We need to we need to see that happening. We need to see also like uh, smaller jurisdictions. I mean, Eastern Europe is actually I think a perfect uh, example of a place that would strongly benefit from adding Bitcoin to their government balance sheets which as far as i understand bulgaria has done to an extent when they confiscated a bunch of bitcoin from um, a prior exchange but i think that is also going to potentially start to emerge alongside the the technical things that we're doing and you know the plausible deniability etc so i think there is multiple pathways forward here and i think that's eventuating but i want to leave you with one thought about gold and, and gold and the Bitcoin relationship. So I agree with you that gold has existed and persisted as a wealth preservation tool to date for the last 5,000 years because it has been fundamentally superior to any other object that could represent this metaphysical fabric of society we call money. So, so gold is the ultimate uh, embodiment of this technology called money because it's got these unique attributes it's an inert metal it is uh you know it is scarce it is you know portable recognizable etc never has something uh beaten it in those attributes so i would leave you with one thing is gold's maintained its purchasing power and it's, it's acted as a wealth preservation tool for so long because it hasn't been beaten but i actually think gold's monetary premium or gold will lose its monetary premium in the coming century and therefore lose its ability to preserve wealth because again similar to what happened with silver versus gold is that silver didn't just lose its monetary premium and sort of uh, move towards its uh, industrial value because of some you know magical reason it's because as paper money uh, emerged, you know, it solved gold's divisibility problem. You know, traditionally, silver was existed to, you know, uh, be the, you know, the little brother to gold's, you know, uh, higher wealth. So, so in the same way as silver's lost its monetary premium, I actually think gold will long-term lose its monetary premium because Bitcoin is so far superior. Again, based on the assumption that gold, sorry, that Bitcoin becomes the most defensible non-state alternative for money. And through economic Darwinism, not only individuals, but groups, communities, uh, small states, and businesses will move towards holding Bitcoin as a way to protect the wealth that they've developed. So that's a long way of saying that I don't know if the hypothesis that gold will still have its monetary premium 5,000 years from now is correct. So. Curious to hear your thoughts
2: on that. That's, you're quite right to raise that uh, gold-silver uh, ratio. I would have raised it myself if you hadn't done, and I totally accept that point. Um, it depends if you argue that gold, you see, all some people want to do, and, and, and I think it will buy today what it buy tomorrow. Now, I, I'm quite happy to accept your hypothesis that in years to come, Bitcoin will buy you a lot more than just par. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't dispute that. Gold has really produced basically par for all these years, you know, and, and, I, and I think that will maintain. I think it's quite possible that Bitcoin uh, in, in years to come will buy you a lot more. The premium over, over, over money, uh, or what is ever money of the day, uh, will be significantly more. I don't think I'd dispute that. Uh, it's a question mm-hmm. of what you want to do, what your risk profile is, what your outlook is, what your time horizon is. All these things come together, And I believe uh, that in diversification, so somebody with my time horizon would have probably a smaller percentage of Bitcoin in their portfolio. A man of your age, I would expect to have a much higher proportion of Bitcoin in his portfolio, Uh, but I'm a boring professional. But let me give you an analogy, if I may. Uh, My father was a Spitfire pilot, all right? Uh, And in the Battle of Britain, he just missed the Battle of Britain by a few months, incidentally, but that's by the by, The Spitfires went a lot faster, climbed a lot quicker, and they were to shoot down the fighter cover. Mm -hmm. The Hurricanes, which weren't so good, but were a good gun platform, were there to shoot down the Heinkels and the bombers, right? They both had a different role in the Battle of Britain, and they both had a very valuable role indeed. The Battle of Britain couldn't have been won without the Hurricane, although the Spitfire had the glamour. So Mm -hmm. that would be the analogy I used. Most of my portfolio were hurricanes, but I do have some Spitfires on the runway as well.
0: But we'll have to see. Brilliant
1: analogy. Sadly,
2: I'll be gone. I'll be gone by those days, but you won't be. And uh, I hope uh, you keep a clip of this and think, ah, the silly old sod
1: was right, or the silly old sod wasn't silly (laughs) old sod. (laughs) Look, Godfrey, I think that's a that's a really good analogy. And again, I. I fundamentally agree with you um i i think one nuance i would just finally add there because i'd, I'd like i'd love to wrap it up on that because i think that's a beautiful note but one small nuance is i think when bitcoin reaches its uh no, I, I don't want to use the word critical mass but when it reaches you know maturation it will be much like what gold is today is a wealth preservation tool you know so, so today bitcoin just happens to be climbing in relative purchasing power because it's emergent so it's kind of compressing gold's 5,000 year history into you know a number of decades so going from zero to maturation is going to come with a whole lot of volatility and a whole lot of increase in purchasing power but I think what a lot of people forget about Bitcoin is they sort of look at it as an investment but much like what you said about gold is I actually view Bitcoin as a as the safest wealth preservation tool um, because it is designed to be fixed in supply you know immutable uncensorable etc so long term the, the the gold sorry bitcoin's existence long term is about uh, preserving purchasing power for holders and for savers which is really what the function of money is supposed to be in the first place and you know and gold has represented that for many many years so i think Today, whilst Bitcoin feels and smells and looks and tastes like an investment, I actually think it's just, we're benefiting from being in early because we're still waiting for the rest of the, you know, 90% of the world to catch up. And in doing so, we're actually going to disproportionately benefit by being uh, in sort of in front of the race. It's kind of like finding gold on the side of the road while the rest of the world was still using seashells and salt, you know? So so Mm -hmm. you would have had a benefit because gold was mispriced. So I think Bitcoin is just fundamentally mispriced today but it will, it will do what gold has traditionally done. And th- th- that's where I think that probably, and like you said, depends on your timescale. If we're talking a short timescale, I think gold will maintain its monetary premium and act as this you know storehold of wealth. But I actually think that monetary premium will begin to be eroded as Bitcoin matures and starts to adopt the mantle of the place you store your wealth safely, securely that you know that what you can buy today is what you can buy in 10 years from now. So so I think that's a, for anyone listening to this, I think, you know, that's something maybe to go away and think about. Um, and I'd love to, you know, continue that conversation, you know, either with yourself or anyone else in the future. But I think that's a very interesting thought experiment. But in the short term, like you said, we need hurricanes, we need spitfires, because this battle is not going to be won by just one of us, it's gonna require all of us to point all of our guns at these maniacs who are, like you said, a blend of fascist, socialist, uh, mercantilist, cronyist, fantasist, and whatever the fuck else they are these days. Apologies for my swearing, but it's a, we, we, we have to hit them where it hurts. And if we're gonna throw gold bricks at them, or if we're gonna throw Bitcoin at them, I don't care what it is. We just need to, we need to do this. Otherwise, the future of the world is not very pretty at all. So, Godfrey, I don't know if you've got any closing comments. I'd love to hear if you've got some no, final I, We are in
2: complete that. agreement. And I hope, I hope you're right. I mean, I hope you're right. I think that one of the best monetary <clears throat> concepts ever uh, is the concept of crypt- real cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. And it's great which is why I'm a supporter, which is why I'm adding to my portfolio. And that's great. And, and as you say, we're, we're all on the same side. If you're, <laughs> we're all on the same side. If you want out of, if you want out of fiat currency, out of political currencies, we're all on the same side. Doesn't really uh, matter in the short term, which route you go, but yeah, you're right. I think you're probably right in the long term, but you know, long term's a long term, isn't it?
1: <laughs> indeed, indeed. Sorry, my friend godfrey where can people find you if you want to give a quick uh, spiel so that way they can follow your work um, uh, my, my website which is quite constructive in many
2: ways because it has a big health page on independent information on coronavirus which has been Fantastic. quite carefully uh, put together uh just website you know where you can get on to independent information outside the government sphere that's quite useful a lot of essays um and a lot of podcasts a lot of sort of well not podcasts a lot of videos sort of five six minutes uh mm-hmm. rants which seem quite popular because it's generally speaking they all say the same thing why don't we hang the bastards Yep. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I, I will put the 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 link in the show notes but if you can tell everyone what the website is is it just- the
2: link is just dot uk
1: is there a dot co in there or is it just the straight uk just the straight dot uk perfect all right so and then on twitter it's just godfrey bloom right uh, got got godders
2: i don't know it's all on the website i've got a man who deals with okay. that i'm i'm not tech savvy <laughs> that's all i can remember godfreybloom.uk <laughs> Perfect. Not a problem.
1: I'll, I'll whack everything in the show notes. Godfrey, thank you so much. I, I really, 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 actually genuinely enjoyed this conversation. I think I think a lot of people are going to get some value from this. And I I thank you sincerely for taking some time out to come on this. It's a great pleasure. It's a great pleasure. It's been fun, this
2: Bitcoin adventure for me. I'm enjoying every moment of it. I've made Indeed. some money, too. Thanks.
1: <laughs> I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Thank you, Bye.